pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would speak to us through your word to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I love watching BBC nature documentaries. You know, Planet Earth 1, Planet Earth 2, the frozen planet, the blue planet. And about 10 years ago, one came out entitled The Human Planet. And what this series of documentaries did is it looked at the interaction between humans and their environment in different parts of the world. So one episode featured um, oceans, another featured deserts, uh, one featured life in the Arctic. Now, in the particular episode on the Arctic, uh, there was one particular series of scenes which uh, is very interesting. Uh, They travel to the north of Norway, well above the Arctic Circle, to where the Sami people, uh, amongst other things, herd reindeer. And the scene is shot in September in the northern autumn at a time when the days are getting shorter, the temperature is getting colder. And what the Sami have to do with their reindeer is they have to herd them uh, 400 kilometres to winter grazing fields. They have to leave where they are and move them somewhere else. Now, the one difficult aspect of this is that part of that migration involves herding the reindeer across a stretch of water two and a half kilometres wide. Water which is barely above freezing. And the person who seems to be in charge of getting the reindeer across the water is a 20-year-old girl called Ella. Anyway, they get the reindeer herd, or part of it, to the edge of the water. The reindeers go in and start swimming. Ella gets in a boat and follows behind them. And there's incredible footage, underwater footage, uh, showing the, the reindeer sort of paddling away. And it looks like exhausting work and tiring work. Now, uh, one of the things which they have to watch out for is that um, they have to get across. But uh, there are reindeers, both young and old, who are going over. And the danger is that a young reindeer might get halfway across and think, this is too much. I'm exhausted. I'm going to turn around and go back. Now, this is a real danger because not only if, if the reindeer goes back, it will possibly lead to its death. But if one reindeer goes back, it might throw the herd into confusion. And out in the middle of the water, they could be, I guess, heading off in different directions and it would be chaos. So one of Ella's key jobs is to keep the reindeers moving forward and to prevent them from turning back. Well, in this particular footage, they're going across and one, I think, young reindeer does turn and start to try and head back from whence they came. Ella is thankfully on the job. She gets the reindeer, turns it back around And eventually, I think it's after an hour or two's paddling, they reach the other side. It involves incredible effort, but of course, green pastures of lichen, (laughs) which is what they eat, uh, await them. Uh, And so they get across to their fresh feeding grounds. Now, what uh, the Sami lady Ella was doing in this was very much like what Paul is doing in today's passage. You see, Paul is seeking to prevent people from turning back to their very great detriment. 
You see, uh, for the Galatians, thanks to the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, how his death and resurrection means we can be forgiven, have our relationship with God restored, uh, have assistance in this life and eternal life in the next. Thanks to that gospel, the Galatian Christians have gone from slavery to sonship. They've gone from being enslaved to their old pagan religious ways and are now sons and daughters of the true and living God. They are living in a much better present and are awaiting an absolutely outstanding future. But it seems that some, and perhaps quite a number of them, were in the process of turning back. They were turning back to some non-gospel alone view of salvation. Now, This passage is not simply of historic interest. It's in fact incredibly relevant to us today. When I was in year 12, I was in a Bible study group of about seven guys. And from what I'm aware today, I think I'm probably the only one of those seven guys who is still consistently attending church. Now, I'm not saying that none of the others are still Christians. They may or may not be. I'm not exactly sure with one or two of them. But some of them have definitely, I guess, turned back from what they once apparently believed in year 12 and are now basing their lives on a a non-gospel alone way of living. Now, I bet many of you could tell similar stories of people who have turned back. Pull out an old fellowship photo from 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Look through their faces and think, where are they going with God now? Well, today we're continuing our series in the book of Galatians. We're up to Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20. And the sermon is entitled, How Can You Turn Back? Now, I imagine uh, some of you will have downloaded uh, an outline setting out the main points we're going to focus on. Uh, You can download it from the website, as you would know. And firstly, we're going to think about don't reject God's gospel, verses 8 to 12. And that's going to be our focus uh, today. But then more briefly, we're going to look at point two, don't reject God's apostle. And then point three, some ministry truths as we go through the passage. But let's look at the first uh, section. Uh, Point one, don't reject God's gospel, focusing on verses 8 to 12. Now, last week we saw that the gospel had saved the Galatians from something to something. They'd been saved from slavery to sonship, to being children of God. And this week, the passage tells us that they've been saved from not knowing God to knowing God. Look at verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? I mean, it seems like madness, doesn't it? Why would you return to slavery from freedom? If you heard Nick's sermon last week, he gave the illustration of the scene at the end of the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. Two former prison inmates find themselves on a beautiful beach in Mexico. It's an image of freedom and beauty and peace, I guess. How ludicrous it would be for those two former inmates to get on a bus, to travel back to the States and check themselves back into prison. 
I mean, it's inconceivable, isn't it? Yet, that seems to be what the Galatian Christians are doing. You see, they seem to be returning to a non-gospel alone view of salvation. Now, why would they be doing that? Did this false teaching seem more appealing, perhaps? Or maybe in some ways it was familiar in its, I guess, works-based mentality. You see, it seems that they were adding something onto the gospel. Look at verse 10. It says, You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. It seems they've fallen victim to something we might describe as gospel plus. To be a Christian, to be a real Christian, you need to respond to the gospel plus do something else. And in this case, the plus is, I guess, adhering to certain Jewish laws. In this case, uh, adopting the Jewish calendar and keeping the Jewish Sabbaths and festivals and the like, it seems. The gospel, they seem to think, was not enough. More was needed. They needed to add on certain Jewish laws to be saved, to be really Christian. They might have thought that this was perhaps progressing, moving forward in their faith. In fact, it's regressing and starting to destroy their faith. You see, when we add to the gospel as the basis for our salvation, we're in fact uh, detracting from the gospel. We're saying to Jesus, your death on the cross was not enough to save me. I need to do something else to help you out, to do more, to give you a bit of a hand. And when we think of it in those terms, it's really quite insulting to think that the Son of God's death on the cross was not sufficient to restore our relationship with God and have our sins forgiven. Gospel plus detracts from the gospel. Now, there are many examples around of gospel plus today. I once played soccer with a guy uh, and as I understood what he believed, he would have said that to be a, a saved, to be a Christian, you need to respond to the gospel, but also attend his particular church, which was the one true church. It seems to be a case there that for salvation, in his view, it was gospel plus attend his church. I used to work with a very lovely girl a number of years back when I was a lawyer, and um, she seemed to be of the view that to be a Christian, you needed to respond to the gospel, but also to be immersed in baptism and to speak in tongues. So for her view, to be a Christian, it was gospel plus immersion, speaking in tongues. From my understanding of the Baha'i faith, I once went to a Baha'i meeting a number of years ago. Uh, it's basically saying that Jesus isn't enough, Muhammad isn't enough, the other religions aren't enough. We need to sort of put them all together in accordance with the teachings of a 19th century Persian man by the name of Baha'u'llah. And what that really does, it presents us with a new teaching. It's Jesus plus an awful lot of other stuff, the gospel plus. Now, any um, non-gospel alone alleged way of salvation is really slavery. I mean, it's for a start, it's ineffective, it doesn't work, but it also enslaves us. See, the Christian life is we're supposed to be our grateful sons and daughters, uh, not insecure slaves. You see, if there's a plus there, we have to do something, we have to engage in some sort of works to be saved. I guess the question is always there, have we done enough? It creates insecurity, it enslaves us to doubt. 
Now, perhaps this would be a good moment just to, guess, I guess, clarify the relationship between being saved and good works as a Christian. Now, the Bible teaches very clearly that we're saved by grace, not works, by receiving God's gracious gospel, not by earning it. Now, um, by receiving this gospel, that's all we need to do. We don't have to add anything to it to be saved. But once we have received the gospel, we've responded to Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Once we're saved, God then has good works for us to do. So the point here is that good works don't lead to salvation. The gospel plus good works don't lead to salvation. The gospel leads to salvation. But once we are saved, as saved people, we then have good works to do. Now, if you'd like to think a bit more about that, that's the very topic we addressed uh, last Monday in Christianity Explained Online. Uh, the, it's still available on the church uh, Facebook page. So if you want to think a bit, a bit about being uh, saved by grace, not works, but being saved to do works, uh, just check out week four of Christianity Online. John Wesley was a famous 18th century English preacher. And uh, John Stott, the famous English 20th century preacher was once speaking of Wesley. And to paraphrase Stott, uh, Stott says of Wesley, Wesley, as a younger man, was a clergyman. He was orthodox in belief. He was full of good works. He visited prisons. He helped slum children. He read scriptures. He fasted. He prayed. But, says Stott, Wesley was trusting in his own righteousness, his many good works to be saved in the early days. He wasn't trusting in the gospel. Now, eventually, Wesley did come to trust in the gospel for his salvation. And looking back on his earlier religious works-dominated understanding of the faith, he wrote, I had even then the faith of a servant, not of a son. You see, the gospel makes us sons and daughters of God. Now, that's a freeing thing not slaves. So we need not to reject God's gospel by trying to add something onto it, which in effect changes it. Now, how does Paul try to help the Galatians here with this problem? And how could Paul help us today as we perhaps face these sorts of issues? Well, what Paul urges the Galatians and us to do is to be like Paul. Look at verse 12. He writes, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me. Now, what aspects of his life do you think he wants them to emulate? Well, clearly, he wants them to emulate his gospel focus, his gospel alone for salvation focus, which comes out throughout this whole letter. But we can also look at some more specific things mentioned earlier. In, in the book. So, for example, Galatians 1.13 uh, speaks, uh, in this verse, Paul speaks of his previous way of life in Judaism. See, Paul's saying he's no longer bound by Judaism. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, I died to the law so that I might live for God. We see Paul is no longer bound by the Jewish law. And in chapter 3, verse 25, he says, Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, by which he means the law. You see, Paul has abandoned 
these Jewish things, these Jewish laws as necessary for salvation and he lives in the light of the gospel. It's the gospel, not the gospel plus the law, which is the basis for his faith. Now we need to stick with this gospel alone way of salvation. Now, of course, once we are saved, once we are God's children, God has many great things for us to do. And there is incredible diversity in the church. Uh, we have different gifts, different interests, different circumstances, different opportunities. As we live out our faith, there's an incredible variety and diversity of Christian lives that we have. But amidst all this diversity, it's the same gospel which saves all of us, which gets us into the church in the first place. Now, tragically, the gospel is always under attack. It's under attack outside religious circles. People cast doubt on it in all sorts of ways, but it's also under attack inside, apparently, Christian circles. And I gave some examples earlier. Some of you might be interested to know that there is a very interesting documentary at the moment on Netflix. It's entitled American Gospel. And it's a very good documentary. And what it does, it contrasts the true gospel, the orthodox gospel, the, the gospel in the scriptures, which we seek to teach at this church, with a thing known as the prosperity gospel. And this is an understanding of the scriptures which teaches that one of the consequences of responding to the gospel is that um, we will be healthy and will be wealthy in this life. It's, it's a quite a prominent uh, teaching in the United States, but also right around the world. And so one of the things or one of the tragedies of this, uh, I guess, perversion of the gospel is that it really enslaves people. And there are some interviews with some people who, I guess, <laughs> struggle with this. So, for example, imagine you're a Christian. Imagine you get sick. Well, the prosperity gospel would suggest that if you have enough faith and you pray with enough faith, God will heal you. So what happens if you pray for healing and you don't get healed? Can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the guilt? So not only are you now afflicted with whatever your affliction is, you have guilt and disappointment on top of it. Uh, it it's, it's never good to change the gospel, to add something to it. Now, uh, the gospel alone way of salvation matters because it's what saves us and it's in accordance with truth. And the first big point in this passage is don't reject God's gospel. But a second thing the passage goes on to discuss is point two, don't reject God's apostle. Now, this is verses 12 to 18. You see, Paul had taken the gospel to the Galatian region. Uh, many Galatians had received uh, the gospel. They'd become Christians, but now they were going off track. And Paul is trying to correct them to get them back on track. But as the, as the letter suggests, they don't seem to like Paul's message. And in fact, they seem not to like Paul very much at the moment either. They seem to be angry with him, uh, a man they once loved. Look at verses 13 and 14, Paul writes. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with a contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. You see, they'd once been very close, but now things have changed. Look at verse 15. Where then is your blessing of me now? 
Paul asks. Or verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, let's be honest, none of us like being corrected when we don't really want that correction. You know, imagine you want to be rich and healthy all the time. You might resent a Christian saying to you, well, that's actually not necessarily promised in the scriptures. Or imagine you really like some particular man or woman. We resent someone who tells us that it's really not good to date a non-believer or marry a non-believer if we are a believing Christian. We might resent someone who says that it's actually wrong to leave your spouse because you find someone else more captivating or whatever. And can I say it's much harder to hear this sort of um, loving correction if there is some apparently Christian teacher telling you otherwise. If there is some apparently Christian teacher saying it's God's will that you will be healthy and that you will be wealthy. Or if some apparently Christian teacher says, look, God is a God of love. If you love him or her, then it must be good. You see, false teachers are sadly everywhere. They are poaching and we need to watch out. And the Galatians were certainly being poached here. Look at verses 17 and 18. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. So the Galatian Christians are being poached by these false teachers. Now, how can we resist false teaching? Well, I guess, obviously, the more we immerse ourselves in God's word, the more we surround ourselves with good Christian teaching, uh, the better we are enabled to, I guess, recognize and identify false teaching and false gospels. A number of years back, I was visiting England and uh, some, a young couple who I used to go to church with were then living in England and I caught up with them and we went along to a church in London. And as we sat and listened to the sermon and the preacher got up and uh, most of the sermon was really good. But there was one section where he said a number of things where I thought, that's not really what the Bible teaches, in my view. And it was interesting that afterwards, when I was talking to this younger couple about what they thought of the sermon, uh, I think it was the wife who said to me, Stephen, what did you think about when the preacher said X, Y, Z? And she'd identified that very thing which I'd had a few concerns about. And I was very encouraged because we'd all previously gone together at a very good teaching church in Sydney. And I guess it highlighted to me about how when we're well taught, we're better equipped to identify false teaching and false gospels. Well, the third point, and far more briefly, let me just highlight a few quick ministry truths which come out in this passage. The first one is that Paul spoke the truth in love. You see, Paul clearly loved the Galatian Christians, and as such, he thought, sought to convey to them true teaching, even when that teaching was unpopular. Look at verse 16 again. Have I now become your enemy, he says, by telling you the truth? You see, sometimes on very important matters, particularly gospel matters, we will need to speak the truth in love to some other person who may have fallen into some sort of mistake. And those conversations can be hard. The key thing for us, though, is to make sure that it is an important truth that we've well understood 
and that secondly, that we're doing it in a loving way. And sometimes the shoe can be on the other foot. We can find ourselves having the truth in love spoken to us. And that can be really hard to hear. But if that's the case, try and stop and think for a moment about the fact that we should be grateful that this other person loves us enough to have this tricky conversation with us. A second ministry truth, which we could briefly mention, uh, is that this passage gives us a great aim for our ministry. Look for verse 19. Paul says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You see, an aim, or perhaps the aim for Christian ministry, once someone is a Christian, is to have Christ fully formed in them, that they will become more and more like Christ. Perhaps you're a parent or a grandparent with responsibility for teaching children. Or perhaps you're a Sunday kids teacher or a scripture teacher or a youth leader or, or, or even a, a small group leader. What are we trying to do in our ministry? Now, sure, we want to have fun together, enjoy each other's company. That's certainly part of it. But what we're ultimately trying to do is to help people become more like Christ, to have Christ fully formed in them. The great reformer John Calvin gave us a very helpful, I guess, warning here as well. He says, if ministers wish to do any good, let them labour to form Christ, not to form themselves in their hearers. You see, what we're doing in ministry is pointing people towards Christ, not towards us ourselves. And thirdly, uh, in the church and in Christian ministry and service, something which I think is probably obvious to us by now, we should expect joy and we should expect pain. This was clearly Paul's experience with the Galatian Christians. At one point, they welcomed him as if he was an angel of God, as if he was Christ Jesus himself. But now, verse 11, he fears for them. Verse 16, he feels he's become their enemy. Verse 19, he's in the pains of childbirth for them. In verse 20, he's perplexed for them. You see, Christian ministry is wonderfully rewarding, but it has its joys and sorrows. We need to expect that and pray that God will help us uh, to deal with that when it comes. So let me conclude. The simple message today is don't turn back, stick with the gospel the gospel alone way of salvation. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, as we live in a culture with lots of so many ideas swirling around, so many views of how we should live and how we shouldn't live, we do pray that you would help us to stand firm in the gospel, relying on the gospel alone way of salvation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.